Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks, who reveals himself to us. And we thank you that you have done that by giving us your word. Lord, we pray that we may understand what we read in it today, and we pray that you may equip me so that I'm able to explain it clearly. And we pray that what people hear this morning may confront them and convict them about their sinfulness and may encourage them to seek you and to follow you in the way that you have instructed in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes in your life you may end up in a teaching position where you're expected to teach something. And then when that comes along, it's always a case of what will I teach and how will I go about teaching it? And if that ever happens, one of the best things that you can do if you're expected to teach something is to rest on the shoulders of those who have gone before you, particularly if you can get the teaching material from someone who has taught that in the past. I remember when I was at university and I was studying my PhD and they often give you some work around the university and some lecturing work and I was asked whether I'd be interested in looking after the radiology class and teaching the new students coming through radiology. And of course I went, oh, not sure if I uh, want to do that. And they said, oh, no, it's okay. You can just use the lecture notes of the previous lecturer and teach from those. And I had studied that uh, subject with that particular lecturer so I remembered what he had said and used his lecture notes and it was very easy because I was resting on his shoulders. Of course I can adapt and change as I went but um, I was able to have a lot of the material, a lot of the hard work already done for me so it was fairly easy to teach that subject because I was resting on the shoulders of the people who came before me. And so today we've got a very special service as we uh, induct a new elder into the eldership of this church and that is Danny, and Danny is expected as an elder of this church to teach. That's the requirement to be an elder of a church. There are many uh, requirements that are given in scripture that have to do with the moral of uh, the morality of uh, deacons and elders, but the difference between deacons and elders in the scripture is that elders are expected to teach. They're expected to teach. So Danny, when he takes on this role, is expected to be a teacher. But what is he expected to teach? What should he teach? Well, of course, he should teach the scriptures. We all know that if he's meant to teach as an elder of a church, and a Christian church, then the foundation of the church is the scriptures. But the scriptures are very big. There's 66 books there. Some of them are very long. Some of them are very short. And there's lots of theology in there, there's lots of doctrine, there's lots of teaching there. What should it be that Danny and the elders of the church, and for that matter that Christians themselves as they teach other people around them, other Christians and non-Christians, what should be the things that they particularly stress? Because we can all have hobby horses when it comes to teaching things from the word, can't we? Some churches you can go to and you can find that they are always teaching the same sorts of theology and they're kind of obscure, abstract bits of theology. Some people can have a particular focus on teaching about creation. They can have a particular focus on teaching about Jewish laws and getting stuck into Israelite history and going through what happened to the Israelites uh, very in minute detail in the Old Testament. Some can have a real focus on eschatology, last things, what is going to happen, and they never seem to get outside the book of Revelation. They're constantly teaching their hobby horse. 
Some can teach uh, obscure theological ideas, uh, infralapsarian and supralapsarianism, which I don't think I've ever uttered from a pulpit until now. Uh, types of teaching that I'm sure most of you have no idea whether you're an infralapsarian or a supralapsarian. Is that the kind of thing that Danny and the elders and the people of Des Moines Baptist Church should be teaching and stressing again and again? Types of obscure theology? Or should it be things like the, what we call the blue laws? Those laws that are about drinking and dancing and smoking that are often taught against in certain pulpits? Are those the kinds of things that we expect Danny to stress in this church and expect the elders of this church to stress and that we as Christians, when we speak to others, we are always talking about whether they should be drinking, whether they should be smoking, whether they should be dancing? What should be the focus of the Christian, the teaching that we give to those around us and the focus of an elder? Well, as I said before, it's good to stand on the shoulders of those who go before us. And one of the great teachers in the Bible is, of course, the Apostle Paul. And he had other teachers under him. And one of those is Timothy and another is Titus. And we just read from the book of Titus something that Paul encourages this younger pastor to do in particular. In teaching, he is to stress something in particular. And I think that is a good model for us to learn from today. The Apostle Paul told another teacher to stress something in particular. And I think that is still the case today, that we should stress what Paul says. And we see that in verse 8, that he wants Titus to stress something in particular. He says in verse 8, which is found on page uh, 1182 of the Black Church Bibles, Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says to this younger pastor, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. I want you to stress something in particular. Another translation of the word stress there is insist, or speak confidently, or even speak constantly. These things... Paul wants Titus to speak again and again and to insist on them and stress them. So what are these things that he says he, they, uh, that Titus should stress there in verse 8? Well, they're given to us from verses 3 through to verse 7. These things are listed for us from verse 3 through to verse 7. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at what are Christians and elders supposed to stress, according to Paul, as they speak to one another and as they teach one another. And so the first thing that is given to us that we're supposed to stress is to teach the true state of humans. That's my first main point there this morning. If you've got an outline of the service there, which is in the bulletin, uh, under the sermon section, you can see my main points. And the first is that you're meant to teach the true state of humans. And that's given for us, to us in verse 3. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 3. What is the true state of humans? Well, it's that they're sinful. Humans are sinful. What does he say in verse 3? At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That is the state of humanity. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved 
by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is the state of humans. They are sinful creatures. But is it all people are sinful? Yes, you can see there, maybe you know some people at work, or maybe you've got some people that you used to be friends with who are like that, but surely not everyone is in that case. Is that sinful? What about Paul and Titus? Surely these guys are pretty good, and so they wouldn't be considered that sinful. What does he say at the beginning of verse 3? At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Even Paul and Titus, godly men. Paul, who was a a Pharisee, who really was zealous for God's law. He too was foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is the true state of all humanity. All people are sinful creatures. And this is one of the things that Paul wants Titus to stress. He wants Titus to continue teaching this. One of the main emphases of Titus' ministry is to teach that people are sinful. And if Danny is to be an elder of this church, he must teach this. So must all the elders of the church and so must you as Christians. You must teach again and again that people are sinful. Now this is not an easy thing to do. People usually do not like to hear that they are sinful creatures. But you must teach it. Even when it hurts, even when it breaks relationships between you and others. I had to speak to someone, uh, a lady, about this fact that she was a sinful creature. And I had to urge her to consider this. And sadly, she said that she'd never heard anything so offensive in her life. She'd never been offended so much by anyone in her life that I should suggest that she was sinful. And sadly, because of me declaring this truth that Titus is encouraged to stress here, she broke all relationship with me. Didn't want to have anything to do with me again, even though I said that I didn't want that to happen, that I was trying to show her from the scriptures that she is sinful. And if you do the same thing, if you stress these things as Paul says you should, then it will break relationships. And you must be prepared for that, but you must continue to teach that this is the true state of humanity. So that's the first thing we're supposed to teach. What's the second thing that Paul says we're supposed to teach? Does he leave it with all bad news that all humans are sinful? No, well he also teaches us how people can be saved from that sinful state. And so that brings me to my second main point this morning. Teach the origin of salvation. Teach the origin of salvation. What is the origin of salvation? How do we get saved from our sin? Well, it can't originate from humans because we are sinful creatures. How can we save ourselves when we're the ones who need to be saved? It must be God who is our saviour. And that is said for us in the text. But when the kindness and love of God, our saviour, appeared. God is the one who must save us from our sins if we are to be saved at all. 
And what motivates then God to save us? Where does our salvation come from? What is the origin of it? Well, we're told in the text a couple of reasons why God saves us. Verse 4, But when the kindness, kindness of God, God in his kindness chooses to save us, that is the reason we have salvation. Is that the only attribute, though, of God there? No, it's also love. The love of God. The reason we can be saved from sin is because God in his love wants to save us. How else? What other attributes of God are given to us in the text? Well, also his mercy. I'll read from verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Why does God save us? Well, because of his love, because of his kindness. And then you might think, oh, well, of course he's going to save me because I'm not too bad a person. It makes sense that he would love me, that he would be kind toward me. But when you get to mercy, you realize that it's not about you. What does it say there in the text? Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. There is nothing in you that makes God think, I want you to be a Christian because you're such a good person. Remember what the first point was, we're all depraved. We're all evil, sinful people. There is nothing good about us that God would then come to us and love us because of who we are, because of the good people we are. No, it's because of his mercy. We need God to be merciful to us as sinners who have sinned against him. And so it's out of his mercy that we have salvation. And then another attribute of God is mentioned further on, though, in verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we also have God's grace there. These are the origins of salvation. It is God with his attributes of kindness, of love, of mercy, and of his grace. These things, these attributes, are where our salvation comes from. And this is something we must teach. We must stress to people again and again and again. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted Titus to stress, and so we must as well. Where does salvation come from? Does it come from us? Does it come from someone else? It comes from God. And a God who's a God of kindness, of love, of mercy, and of grace. That is where salvation from sin comes from, and nowhere else. And you must teach that, even though it may seem offensive. People think, I can help myself. People think, oh, someone else can help me with my sinful problem. I can go to a psychologist and they can help me deal with my sin. If you want to deal with sin, you must turn to this God. No other God either can help you. It has to be the God of kindness, love, mercy and grace. This is the second thing that Paul wants Titus to stress. What's the third thing? What next does he want Titus to stress and that we should stress? Well, that brings me to my third main point. Teach the means of salvation. The means of salvation. How does God save you? How does God bring into effect the salvation that he offers? Well, the first way 
is through the Holy Spirit washing you, giving you new birth and renewal. And we see that in verse 5. Verse 5 continues part of a sentence from verse 4, and then we have a new sentence. And it says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the new birth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How do you have that salvation that God offers applied to you? Well, it must be done by the Holy Spirit. It can't be done by you, remember, because you're one of those people described in verse 3. And you're totally incapable of washing yourself. Every time you try to wash yourself, you just make it worse. You need the Holy Spirit to come and change your heart, wash away your sin, give you a new birth, a new life, so you're born again, as Jesus says, and you have renewal, you have a change inside you from being a sinful person to being a righteous person. And that is only done by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who does it. No one else. It is him and him alone. How else does God bring about this change? The Holy Spirit that does it? Is there another means? Well, if you've been following along, you might have thought, well, how can God do this by the Holy Spirit when he's also meant to be a God of justice? He's meant to punish people when they sin, particularly those neighbours who have hurt me. He's meant to punish them. In his justice, he's not meant to let the sinners go free. How can the Holy Spirit come along and wash people, turn them from being sinners to righteous people, and then them to get off scot-free, and God to still be a just person? How can God do this? Well, then we see the other member of the Trinity involved, don't we? We've had God, the Father, the Saviour. Then we've had the Holy Spirit doing the washing. How can the Holy Spirit do that? Well, we're told how in verse 6. Whom, that's a reference back to the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, that's God pouring out the Holy Spirit on us, generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. How can God cleanse you and still be a just God? Because of Jesus Christ. How can that be? What did Jesus Christ do that allows the Holy Spirit to cleanse and change you? Well, he took your sins and bore them on the tree. He was crucified in your place so that God's justice was upheld The punishment that you deserve was put upon him and you can go free because justice has been met at the cross. And so the Holy Spirit can come, change you, wash you, cleanse you, forgive you and it's because Jesus' blood shed for you allows him to be a just God in doing so. The punishment that you deserve is carried over to Jesus and you are able to go free and God's justice is there and God's love is shown there at the cross. And so these are two things that you must teach. As a Christian, these are something that God wants you to stress. How does salvation come about? He wants you to stress that it's the Holy Spirit's work. It's not the work of man. It's not the work of yourself and it's not the work of people around you. 
It's the Holy Spirit that cleanses. And he wants you to stress that it's through Jesus Christ. Danny, as an elder, must teach this. And the other elders of the church must teach this. And you as Christians must teach this. That if people are to be saved, it must be through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work and it must be through the cross. There's no other way that God's justice can be there, upheld, if it's not through the cross. If it's another way of salvation that is taught by some other religion, it can't be true because justice is not met. So, Christians, so far we've seen, are meant to teach the depravity of man, the origin of salvation, and the means of salvation. What else? Well, we also get to teach the results of salvation. The results of salvation. And what is that? Well, it's there in verse 7 for us. The next thing. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Two things. One result, justification. Justification by God's grace. What does it mean to be justified? What is justification? Well, to be justified means to have uh, justice, to uh, have been legally declared righteous. If we try to justify ourselves in something, we try to prove that we were right. And that's what happens to us when God saves us. We are justified. We are legally, in God's court, declared to no longer be unrighteous, but to be righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ at the cross and because of the Holy Spirit cleansing and changing us. We are justified. And that's a marvellous result in itself of salvation. We are no longer unrighteous. We are righteous. That's a fantastic thing to be able to teach people. The earlier things may be a little harder. People don't like hearing they're depraved. People don't like hearing that they need God's mercy. People don't like hearing uh, that it's only the Holy Spirit that can save them. That it needs to be through the cross. But you're meant to teach those hard things, but you also get to teach the results, the good results, which motivate people to accept the earlier things that we can be declared righteous instead of unrighteous. That means then we aren't what's described in verse 3. Remember what we were described as? At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We are no longer that. We are washed, we are changed, we are justified from those things. So we're no longer hated by God, but we're loved by God. We're no longer hating those around us, we're loving those around us. God justifies us. And what's the other result then? Not just that you're declared righteous, but you get a reward too. And that's there in verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We're no longer going for eternal punishment in hell because of what we've done as described in verse 3. Instead, we are heirs of an eternal inheritance, of eternal life, where we will live forever with Jesus in a glorious place, in a heavenly place where there's no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain. 
a wonderful place. That is a result of salvation. And that is something that should be taught by Christians, by the elders of a church. Something that Paul wanted Titus to stress is that result that we can have of heaven. So we've seen what we're supposed to teach. We're supposed to teach the gospel, the good news here, with all its levels. That's what we're supposed to be teaching. But why would you teach that? Why would you have that as your primary focus? That brings me to my fifth main point this morning. Teach these things for good reasons. For good reasons. And they're given to us in verse 8. What are the good reasons? Well, firstly, we see that it's a trustworthy thing to teach. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. These things that Paul has just said are trustworthy. They're things that you can trust, that you can put your faith in. They're reliable truths. They're not abstract principles that are somehow airy-fairy and you aren't really sure whether these things are true or not. No, you can trust these things. You can put your life, you can put your soul at stake on these things. Whereas some things in the Bible, we aren't quite certain. There's different interpretations. Things, exactly what's going to happen at the end times. If we teach those regularly from the pulpit they're not necessarily right. There's good Christians, good faithful men who disagree with one another about certain things in the Bible. And we can't quite be sure which is true. What is the right interpretation? But about these things, we can trust them. These are trustworthy sayings. This is a trustworthy saying, what we have learnt here in the Gospel. This is something we can stake our lives upon. Whereas staking your life upon your interpretation of things that are a little bit more difficult to understand, that's a fairly dangerous thing to do, to keep talking about things that we can't quite understand. It's a bit of a waste of time, and it leads people away from the things that are trustworthy, the things that they can trust and depend upon. Another reason why we should teach these things Well, when you teach these things, people end up doing good works. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. See, often we talk about, as Christians, all the laws that we're meant to do, all the things that we're meant to do as Christians, and we think that we need to stress those things again and again so that people will be good Christians. But if we're stressing the gospel again and again, the things that Paul says we should stress, then people start doing good works. We've got to remember that the root of a Christian is faith, is in the gospel, not good works. And so if we are believers in this gospel, good works will start to appear. And so if we stress the gospel again and again and again, good works take care of themselves. Yes, we do have to teach people what they have to do, but we don't go legalistic and start teaching it as a main focus. If we teach the gospel, that will get people to do good works. If you teach people to do good works again and again and again, it's very likely that they'll become legalistic people and start to trust in their own righteousness. 
Whereas if you stress the gospel again and again, that they are at the hands of God's mercy, that they have been washed only through Jesus Christ, then humility comes very quickly. And with humility, the good works, the fruit of the Spirit. So if you teach the gospel, people start to do good works. Why else should we teach these things? Well, the end of verse 8, the last sentence there says, These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Two other reasons there. Although some commentators say that the word these things, those two words there, actually refer to the good works. I'm not so convinced. I think maybe it's uh, going back to the verses from 3 to, to 7. And even if it's not, well, we can say indeed that these things that are taught from 3 to 7 are excellent. They are very good things. They're things that are helpful to teach people. And that's the next word is profitable. If you teach these things, you're teaching excellent things. And who doesn't want to be an excellent teacher, teaching the very best things, not wasting your time on things that are frivolous? Teach things that are excellent, and these things are excellent, and these things are profitable. We've already seen that they produce good works in people. They bring people to profit. And if you start doing good works, then you start to live a life that is profitable. You start to live a life of peace and enjoy the life that God has given you. It is profitable for you to concentrate on these things. So, Danny and the other elders of this church, I want to challenge you this morning. Is the gospel the focus of your teaching? Is it the thing that you stress? Or do you want to shun Paul's advice and focus on other doctrines, other things, at the expense of teaching the gospel? Maybe things that are more interesting for you to teach. They're kind of obscure and other people don't know them enough. You, you want to make people excited about things that you have learned yourself that are obscure. Paul says no. He says stress the gospel. And you as Christians here this morning, is the gospel the focus of your life? Is this what you teach firstly yourself and others? You're meant to be stressing the gospel again and again in your own life. When you have troubles, when you're concerned about sin, what should you turn to? Turn to the gospel. Turn to these truths. Remind yourself of how you have salvation from sin. That is what will produce good works in you. That is what will justify you. That is what will give you eternal life. Do you do that? And when you teach others about Christianity, what is the main focus of your teaching? Is it the gospel? Is it these things that Paul has told Titus to stress? And as Christians... Do you make sure that this is what your church stresses? That your elders stress? Do you elect elders to office that love the gospel and love to share the gospel, love to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified? Do you make sure that that is the case? Paul wants you to make sure that is the case. Do you? And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I just want to speak to you. I'm glad that you're here. 
But I want you to understand that this is what Christianity is all about. We proclaim that man is sinful, including you, and that you need salvation. And the only place that salvation comes from is from God. It can't come from you. If you're honest, you admit that you're a sinner, that you've done wrong things, and that you need someone to help you with your sin. Well, where's that help going to come from? It's going to come from a merciful, from a loving, from a kind, from a gracious God. A God who sends his Holy Spirit to wash you as only he can. Through Jesus' blood at the cross. So I encourage you this morning, if you're not a Christian, understand that this is what Christianity is all about. We're not all about proclaiming how righteous we are, which is what some people confuse Christians as. We proclaim quite clearly that we're not. We are deceived, foolish people. But we're righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can be too, if you will accept him by repentance, repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus died for you. If you repent and believe, then the Holy Spirit has washed your heart. We're meant to be believers in these things. We see that in uh, verse 8. It says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress those things, these things, so that those who have trusted in God, faith is required. If you're not a Christian this morning, I encourage you, believe that Jesus died for you and accept his work at the cross so that these results of salvation can be applied to you, that you're no longer unrighteous, you're no longer sinful, you are righteous in God's eyes and you have eternal life waiting for you and not eternal punishment in hell. Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul as he encouraged another minister of your gospel to stress the gospel, to stress the sinfulness of man, to stress the saviour of sin as you alone in your kindness, in your love, in your mercy, in your grace. As he was encouraged to stress that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can wash and cleanse us, and that this comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And his, he was encouraged also to stress the results of eternal life. Lord, we do pray that the elders of this church may stress these things. May these be the primary focus of their teaching. And we pray also for the Christians here this morning. We pray that their lives may be centred around the gospel. May this be the focus of their lives. And as they open their mouths and speak to other Christians, may they uphold the gospel. And may they uphold the gospel as they open their mouths to non-Christians. And Lord, we do pray if there are any unbelievers present here this morning, we pray that they may recognise how sinful they really are. May they not deceive themselves further by convincing themselves that they are not sinners. May they understand what they have really done against you and against their fellow man. And Lord, we pray that they may cry out to you for mercy and ask for your Holy Spirit's cleansing through Jesus' blood. 
and we pray that this may happen today so that they are no longer unrighteous, but they are justified and they are heirs of eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.